Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. So the dark web, also known as the Tor network, is basically it's a it's a it's a part of the internet that is anonymous um, and it scrambles your IP address. So if you're using this um, special software properly, then you that unique identifier, your IP address, which usually tells authorities who you are and where you're located, becomes scrambled, and suddenly you can send, host, and receive information without the authorities knowing who you are or where you're located. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse. They are the go-to agency for any organization with digital needs. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. A quick heads up that our Humans of Purpose Experience Survey is still open for you to tell us just how to improve the podcast. Hit the link in our show notes to submit your entry and be one of the first 50 entrants to win an exclusive Humans of Purpose brand collab with Memo Bottle worth over $40 per reusable bottle. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with James Martin. James is a senior lecturer at Deakin University. He specializes in criminology and more specifically, crypto markets, illicit drugs, the dark web, cyber and organized crime. James started out as a researcher embedded in the criminal underworld in Johannesburg, mainly following the behavior of drug kingpins and cartels. After putting his life in danger for some years, James decided that the dark web offered him a unique opportunity to study criminal behavior online. James is one of my favorite people to talk to on Humans of Purpose. He appeared in our first 100 episodes and he's back to update us on his work, research and the progress of his study. He actually invented the word crypto market and he's one of just a handful of prominent researchers globally to be unearthing this largely uncharted new area of research. I won't spoil the episode, but needless to say, James's research in this area is groundbreaking and he can give us some unique insights into the dark web and behavior on it. Hope you enjoy my conversation with James as much as I did. So James, so good to have you back. It's only been about three years since we last connected. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Really nice to, to check out the new digs. The new digs. You say that like my house, I moved into the comments from my house, <laughs> but I have not, I can assure listeners. Um, yeah, look, I think your area of work is fascinating. And our last conversation a couple of years ago was for me, one of my favorite conversations. Uh, it's just an area of real interest for me. And I know many of our listeners too. So um, we want to talk about everything dark web today, but maybe just a little bit of history about you and your entry, how you found your way being a sort of a key researcher in the dark web uh, and crypto markets. Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I guess my personal story goes back around 10 years now. Um, I was um, finishing up my PhD fieldwork. Um, so my original sort of academic area of expertise was not in the dark web at all. It was uh, actually studying vigilante gangs in South Africa. And um, uh, I was working over in Johannesburg uh, on the northern outskirts in a shanty town there. And um, it was it was very interesting research. I met some wonderful people. But it was also, well, honestly, it was completely terrifying as well. And it was it's, um, a very dangerous and crime-affected environment, which was the reason that I was there. But when I got out of that environment, I thought, you know what, I... I'm not going to do this again. I, I can't can't continue working. My mum, you know, if, if for no other reason, won't let me go to places like that again. We're talking about sort of imminent risk to um, 
yeah. to personal safety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, look, I, I don't want to overstate it. You know, there's a, a lot of people. You know, people live in these shanty towns. You know, kids uh, and stuff. But it's um, it's an environment that if uh, you know, if you're average Australian, you know, or you know, or, or other sort of member of a of um, a privileged class that can live in somewhere that's relatively violence free, it's it's pretty shocking, and it and it's um, you know it took me a fair while to to get back to normal, you know, after after being um, and um, in a place like that for for a while. So when I did that, I was like, look, you know, I was really keeping my eyes out for a different area of research, and um, around the same time, I had friends of mine who were talking about buying, having bought drugs off this website called Silk Road, and had I heard of it. And I hadn't. Um, so it was a really wonderful sort of confluence of events where, you know, usually researchers spend their, their whole or majority of their lives working in these kind of silos, whereas, um, you know, this whole new research area, this completely new criminal phenomenon opened up just as I was looking for, you know, a new area of research. So so quite a serendipitous start. Yeah, that's amazing. What a story. And and how how crazy it must have been to sort of be there at the at the um the advent of the silk road and, and everything like that the yeah. beginning of the dark web really yeah well i mean the dark web um the, the history of the dark web dates back a little bit um pr- prior to that but um it was really the combination of the dark web and cryptocurrencies that you know once those sort of building blocks were put together um you know silk road uh, and other sites like it were the inevitable result but it but it was fantastic you know it, it's as it's weird as a researcher getting to colonize New space, and when I was working in this area, there, there was you know a handful of it, practically nothing written. So it was it was great to to get in there and plant the flag and start exploring some really exciting new ideas. It's awesome, and um, so maybe let's get a bit definitional. And uh, when I tell other people about what I think the dark web is, it's probably totally wrong. So feel free to correct me. But I kind of draw like a bit of a glacier, and mm-hmm. maybe the top part of the glacier, which is maybe the third or something or twenty percent of the surface area you can see, is the internet. And then maybe two thirds below or, or more uh, that you can't see that is unindexed is sort of the dark web. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the, there's a few different ways of looking at. It. Yeah, I, I like this sort of glacier, the iceberg sort of model as well. Um, so there's there's two. Well, yeah. So the, there's a few different ways of slicing it. So the surface web, you know, is the one we're all familiar with. That's you know the the, the homepage of any website that you would go to. Um, basically, anything that you can access through um, a search engine is what we call the the surface web. Then beneath that, um, and the majority of the internet is what we call the deep web. Um, so not the dark web, but the deep web. And the deep web is basically everything is behind a password or a firewall of some kind. So, you know, your company or university intranet, for example, would be, you know, that's that's all part of the deep web. Um, and then beneath that, or really sort of separate to that, is what we call the dark web. And the dark web is basically an encrypted subset of the Internet and it's only accessible through a special type of internet browser called a Tor browser. So, um, so the dark web, also known as the Tor network, is basically it's a it's a it's a part of the internet that is anonymous um, and it scrambles your IP address. So, if you're using this um, special software properly, then you that unique identifier, your IP address, which usually tells authorities who you are and where you're located, becomes scrambled and suddenly you can send, host and receive information without the authorities knowing who you are or where you're located. That's amazing. And so perhaps, I mean, a question that comes to mind is how would someone go about um, selling drugs on the dark web and why would they sort of consider doing that? Sure. Well, you know, they're they're really interesting questions. Um, And 
Uh, luckily, we spoke to a bunch of uh, darknet drug dealers a couple of years ago to find out. So this was a um, an Australian Institute of Criminology project that I led, and, and and also had some some fantastic researchers on my team: Monica Barrett from RMIT, um, Rasmus Munksgaard um, from Copenhagen, and a handful of others as well. Um, but yeah, we, that was exactly the question we sought out, and so we we put ads on um, on the various darknet sites, the crypto markets, um, and uh, through a couple of other sort of clearnet trusted news sites, um, and through some community gatekeepers, people like the journalist uh, Eileen Ormsby, who's written extensively on on Silk Road as well. Um, once these people started vouching for us, then we started um, getting interviewees, people who were happy to talk to us. And it was funny, actually, like a lot of the – we wondered if anyone was going to talk to us. Um, and one of the things that we found is because a lot of the darknet drug dealers that we were interviewing were very successful in concealing their identities, unlike, a, you know, sort of a street dealer where you've got the street cred and all the rep and, you know, you can go to parties and hand out free drugs, nobody knew in, you know, nobody in these people's social circles knew that they were dealing drugs. Um, so it was almost like they were busting just to, to you know, to someone to recognize, <laughs> you know, their achievements in their criminal underworld. Um, so it was, it was cool. We got some, you know, absolutely fantastic data, which we published a little bit about already. Um, and so, yeah, the reasons that, uh, that people gave most commonly, it was, they talked about it being much safer, um, so safer in a few different senses. Safer from the police was a big one, but also one that is probably more important um, is for drug dealers, safety from other offenders. So, you know, not having to worry about some chopper reed type, you know, kicking in your door mm. and torturing you to death and mm. stealing your stash. Uh, the anonymity that's afforded by the dark web not only protects you from cops, but it prote- protects you from everyone else as well. So it protects you from standover men, you know, the, the sort of, uh, the big bad dudes that are out to get you. It also protects you from your customers as well. Um, so one of the things that we did when we were talking to these people was, you know, for example, we'd be asking people if they'd had a, a experience, you know, uh, um, dealing on the street, you know, or, or through through private networks beforehand. And some, about half said they did and about half said they didn't. And about the half that said that they didn't, they were very quick to point out that they were really conflict averse. You know, they, they weren't interested in doing any kind of face-to-face drug deal where they thought something could go wrong or even, you know, not even violence, just a really unpleasant interaction with someone who was trying to, you know, get drugs or, you know, get money or whatever it might be. So the the control and the safety that people uh, were afforded by the anonymity, by the geographical separation between themselves and their customers was a really, uh, was a really big motivating factor. Another big one was profit. Uh, so the darknet drugs trade is pretty stratified. There's um, there's like a handful, uh, you know, kind of the, the one percenters or between five and one percent of the vendors out there account for about half of the drug deals. Then there's a little set below that, about maybe 10 percent, which uh, accounts for about, you know, 45 percent. And then the bulk of darknet drug dealers actually sell very little, little to none. Um, so we had representatives from all of those um, uh, different groups, but if you can make it into that top echelon or even the second one, you know, you were talking huge sums of money because you can access um, not only a global client base, um, but you can you can do all these deals directly with customers that would be very dangerous to do in the offline drug trade because anyone can be an undercover cop. And, and in fact, if you had a customer base, you know, if you're one of the top net drug darknet drug dealers, you would assume that some of your customers would be undercover cops. 
But provided you, you know, cross all your T's and dot all your I's in terms of your operational security, not leaving fingerprints, you know, on packages, you know, mixing up your drop-off points sufficiently, uh, then there's a lot you can do. So it's, it's safe to deal to that number of people, relatively speaking. Amazing. And, I mean, one of the challenges must have been how do you actually speak to these people who are masters at um, concealing their identity. I imagine it's not like a regular Teams or Zoom call. No, that's right. So, you know, it, it involved getting across a lot of encryption protocols. Um, we had five, I think it was uh, from memory, different encryption protocols that we offered to um, interviewees on our, on our advertisements um, and inviting them to pick one or to suggest, you know, another one themselves. So we, we went to pretty significant lengths to communicate in whatever via whichever sort of mechanism our interviewees are. So is, is, it, is it like you're getting somebody who you can't see their face and their voice is scrambled kind of thing? Yeah, so we, we did um, – all of the interviews were via um, text. So, you know, we, we originally wanted to do it in kind of real time, mm-hmm. but we found that that sort of made for shorter conversations and people felt pressured to respond. So we're getting – short answers to questions when we really wanted lengthy sort of more detailed ones. So we switched to an asynchronous mode where we would post a question and then people would get back to us, you know, a few hours later or whenever they were free basically. And we found that that was much more effective in getting a really detailed, lengthy, insightful kind of responses that we're after. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and so when you talk about the breakdown of the dark web um, drug markets and how, you know, a couple of percent does the top 50% and whatnot, does that mean if you're a dark web um, dealer, you kind of enter into some arrangement with these bigger sites to kind of provide um, and sell through them? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's two sort of main ways that drug dealing takes place on the dark net. Uh, one is via the big sort of mainstream crypto markets, which are the equivalent of the sort of eBay-style um, markets where they just host the encrypted infrastructure. Um, and like eBay, you know, if you want to sell something, you create an account, you say, you know, here's um, James, I'm selling this stuff, or, I'm, you know, Mike, I'm selling some heroin, whatever. Um, and uh, and away you go. People connect with you through the site. The other way you can do it is to set up your own shop front. Um, so, you know, you can... If, provided you've got the, the technological expertise, you can set up your own sort of online store. The problem with that, of course, is um, if, you're getting, if you're starting out, then you probably don't have a critical mass of customers to be able mm. to, to get that rolling. So probably the, the more likely pathway is for someone to start up a seller page on one of the mainstream crypto markets, generate a big you know, client base, and then you can take your customers you know, off and, and do sort of direct sales without uh, – because – even though the crypto markets are generally pretty safe um, and good for getting exposure to that sort of mass international customer base, they also take a commission on your sales. So, um, uh, yeah, there's there's incentives for people to get off them if they can as well. In that environment um, where everyone is really um, circuitous about, you know, um, hiding their identity, how do you verify the sources are who you think they are and mm-hmm. they verify who you say you are? Yeah. And also how in peer-to-peer transactions do you know like that you're dealing with a person of true intent and motives yeah so that, that's a great question you know how, how do you generate trust in a in an anonymous online environment yeah um so th- there's a couple of um there's a couple of different ways you can do that one in terms of verifying who you're speaking to there's a thing called pgp pretty good privacy it stands for and it basically um uh is a unique signature Basically, um, it's a whole paragraph of numbers and, and dots and, and 
dashes and everything. And um, only your unique algorithm can produce things that are consistent, you know, consistently recognized. So uh, your listeners will probably figure out I'm not a techie specialist. You know, I can't, I can't explain the ins and outs of PGP, but basically it's a very good way of, uh, it's basically an online signature of sorts, okay. you know, using this. So, so people, so for example, when we were doing our interviews, we could put our PGP key up on the um, advertisement. And then when people start communicating to us, we can provide that key and they go, aha, Whoever you are, you're the same person who created that advertisement. And we can do the same with them vice versa. Sort of like a verification mechanism that makes exactly. a lot of sense. Yeah. And so um, and so in terms of identifying dealers, dealers provide PGP keys as well on their seller pages. So what we can do, we can say, all right, um, this person is providing us with a PGP key. They say they're a darknet drug dealer. We'll go and verify that they are. Uh using that PGB key, and then we would destroy all of those logs immediately because um, uh, we want to make sure that even if the cops come and seize our laptops and all the rest of it, and, you know, what we're doing is funded by the government. There's nothing illegal about it, but we want to make sure that in the event that, you know, a bit like the police using the QR codes, you know, in West Australia to track down offenders, um, you know, cops are pretty practical and inventive and, you know, sometimes um, the stuff that they do isn't always strictly legal, um, yeah, so we wanted to make sure that even worse comes to worse, we wouldn't end up inadvertently identifying any of the people that we were interviewing. Um, so that's how you would demonstrate, you know, who someone who's, who says at least who they say they are. There's no real way to demonstrate that that person is tethered to an offline I- identity of any particular kind. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. And just in terms of drug purchasing behaviour, what happens, for example, when there's an event like COVID and everyone goes into lockdown? How does that affect real-life drug transactions and dark web drug transactions? Uh, well, it was the really interesting thing about COVID was, I mean, it upturned all of our lives, right? You know, suddenly we're all in lockdowns. Um, suddenly we've got, you know, we're trapped in our homes there's a lot of uh, – it changes the kind of mental stress that people are under. Um, it gives people a lot more spare time um, and in some cases more money as well. You know, you're not spending money, you know, down the pub or, you know, the uh, or the movies or wherever. Uh, so we did see very significant changes in people's drug usage uh, habits. Um, some of these were, were, were kind of – well, most of them were, were pretty predictable and predicted by various people. So the, the big one would be – um, you know, for example, are we likely to see, you know, decreases in the kinds of drugs that are commonly used in social settings? So something like MDMA uh, or cocaine, for example, you know. Pro-social pe- drugs. Pro-social drugs. People are out there, you know, they're mixing at the pub or at a music festival, that sort of thing. Um, are people going to use those drugs at home by themselves? Well, yes, they do, but probably less likely. Um, and, um, and uh Contrary to that, you've got drugs like cannabis, which, you know, often better to use by yourself or in small sort of groups. Um, People don't like using them out at those big festivals quite as much as the sort of, you know, party drugs. Uh, So those were sort of hypothesized to be increasing as well. And that's exactly what we found, particularly here in Australia. There were very significant increases in cannabis usage and quite significant decreases in MTMA and cocaine usage. And is that via the dark web or generally? 
Yeah, well, so the supply stuff was actually probably even more interesting, from, certainly from a, from a criminologist's perspective because um, – and I, th- I think we might get to some of the law enforcement stuff uh, later down the track, but there's actually very few supply-side interventions. And by, by that I mean, you know, anything that tries to interrupt supply some way, so arresting drug dealers or inter- intercepting drug shipments at the border, they're notoriously um, and consistently – the worst way to try and control drug use and the harms associated with drug use. And despite that, the you know, unfortunately they remain by far the most funded out of the various different ways of doing that. Uh, but um, while law enforcement interventions have been very unsuccessful in disrupting our illicit drug supply, COVID, actually we saw big disruptions to illicit drug supply on a scale that we haven't really seen because um, not only were people not able to, you know, maybe access your local drug dealer, you know, at the place that they were used to, but entire global supply chains were being shut down. You know, we had ships that weren't, you know, suddenly were not going between countries and, you know, overland. Um, while trade was still occurring, it was happening in a much smaller place. And, of course, the smaller the the volume of legitimate trade that goes around, that's a smaller haystack for, you know, that, that needle, you know, that's the, drug, the illicit drug supply to conceal itself in. Um, and we saw disruptions for, you know, even, for example, um, cocaine uh, production, which is something that has been resistant to, you know, the US napalming huge, you know, parts of the Andean countryside. Suddenly that was disrupted because the precursors that are necessary for that were, were not making their way into South America. So we saw globally very significant disruptions to, to um, illicit drug supply chains. Cannabis was one of the ones that was relatively minimally affected and you know, obvious reason for that you can grow you can grow pot in your backyard so um, you're not quite as vulnerable to, to some of those big supply shocks so that's an interesting one another thing that you've written about that I found quite fascinating about the amount of um, drug uh, purchasing or usage behavior was hydrocodone um, uh, prescribing in the U- further prescribing of that in the US and uh, you're finding that that led to a statistically significant increase in dark web opioid purchasing. Yeah, so that was that was one of my favourite studies done to date, and I think it's probably got one of the the least sexy titles out there. We, we, <laughs> we got it published in the Britical British Medical Journal, um, which was really good fun. And they, yeah, it was it was um, it was interesting. What we found was um, there are ver- various um, programmers uh, and computer science researchers that develop what we call. Um, software crawlers and these crawlers go out and they basically vacuum up all of the information that's available on the darknet sites that are in operation. So with that, we get like amounts of customer feedback, pricing information, drug types. There's weirdly, we we actually know a lot more about the scale and composition of the darknet drugs trade uh, than we do about the offline drugs trade because these sites exist, all the information is publicly available and we can go through and use these, these special software crawlers to, to hoover it all up. Um, but one of the weird things we noticed was um, uh, we were looking at some this we in this research team that I, that I work with we were looking at some of the um, results from some of the software crawlers out there and there was a big change in the composition of uh, illicit drugs that were being sold through the darknet in um, in 2014 and there was this massive spike in prescription drugs and the people who had conducted the original study hadn't looked into that any further they were just sort of doing this, this sort of big overall general trends and we looked into that and we were like well, what what accounts for this big worldwide you know increase in the sale of prescription drugs what kind of prescription drugs is there a particular place that, that this increase happened and actually the the story was even more um 
simple than that. It all came down. Pretty much the entire increase that we saw that looked like a global increase was actually just occurring in the United States. And it was all occurring with um, prescription opioids. And it was all tied to the week that the US Drug Enforcement Agency passed this ban on the endless filling of prescriptions for this this really popular opioid painkiller that was only available in the United States, pretty much called hydrocodone. Um, so basically what happened, um, and I know you know uh, probably more than I do about the story of the, the opioid crisis and how that was created, but basically, you know, market was flooded with these, these cheap, very powerful opioid painkillers. Uh, hydrocodone was the most popular of those. A whole bunch of people got addicted to this drug that never should have. And then instead of providing any sort of rehabilitation or transition support, the government just said, oh, okay, well, you're all addicts. We're not going to sell this anymore. And the week that they did this, we saw this massive explosion in the trade of um, of illicit opioids on the darknet. It's interesting because when the opioid crisis um, happened, the transition was um, to heroin. Um, but, you know, obviously that's already in play now. So it's sort of a transition from the what, what you call the surface web to the dark web instead of that transition of one drug class to another mm-hmm. more street available drug class. Yeah, well, yeah. and we, we saw a transition as well to within the different drug types. So... Um, we saw a transition from hydrocodone um, uh, to oxycodone, which is a more powerful version. Yes, people are probably a bit more familiar with that. But then we saw a transition to fentanyl. Um, and it was all because basically there's this thing called the Iron Law of Prohibition. Um, and the Iron Law of Prohibition states that um, if you ban a drug of any kind, whether it's alcohol um, or cannabis or whatever it might be, that in banning it, you will not necessarily destroy the demand or the trade in that drug, but you will create a, um, a stronger a market for stronger substitutes. So, for example, you know, in alcohol prohibition days, um, when when they banned alcohol, most people in the United States were not big spirit drinkers; they were drinking, you know, beer and wine and just the usual kind of stuff. But suddenly, once that stuff's banned, if you're a trafficker or even if you're someone who wants to buy some illegal booze you're probably not going to be walking around with slabs of beer and, you know, cartons of wine and all the rest of it. Much easier, more profitable and discreet to, to traffic in, in whiskey. Um, and so to so that's the iron law of prohibition, you know, banning the alcohol, you create this market for these higher uh, potency substitutes. And that's what we saw on the dark net with this as well. In banning hydrocodone, relatively lower level, you know, still too strong that it shouldn't have been prescribed in the first place. But once people are in the dark net and they're looking at opioids, they go, oh, hang on, why am I buying this stuff when I can get more of a bang for my buck for that? I can import more. It's less of a risk because, you know, it's less bulky or whatever. And so, yeah, it was a a really fun study to work on because we're able to use this entire, you know, in a really specific sense to this one policy decision, uh, which was, yeah, it, it was really good fun to work on. And that must be fascinating for you to be able to sort of say, I think this decision is going to drastically change things. Let's monitor that and write a paper on that or do do a project on that. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of the things so usually, you know, we kind of we kind of knew beforehand that the iron law prohibition was true. There were other studies that, you know, looked at things like alcohol prohibition in the US. But a lot of this data, it's, you know, it's it's big, it's hazy, uh, there's a huge delay um, between getting the data and being able to attribute it to any one thing. So it's, you can sort of see general trends. Whereas because we've got this granularity and detail in the, the darknet data, you know, we can see changes week to week and we can see changes between different countries really easily. So we were able to, to tie it to this specific um, policy implementation really in a, in a very 
concrete and specific kind of way. Um, so that allows us as researchers to be able to go to law, to lawmakers and policymakers um, and say, look, you know, please don't do this. This is what happened, you know, when a similar decision was made overseas. So it allows us as re- researchers to make, um, yeah, to, ma- to make more uh, credible kinds of suggestions and predictions. Changing tack slightly, I mean, it, it must be very hard to gather data in what's essentially like a subterranean wild west so what without doing interviews or making dramatic inferences or assumptions, what can we actually say about the number of Australians that regularly access the dark web? What do they purchase on it? Um, or is there any way of uh, knowing that or getting that information? Yeah, there's a, there are a few different ways we can slice that question. Um, and all of them have their own problems, but, but by triangulating them, you know, we can we can build what we hope is a more accurate um, picture. In terms of the numbers of people who are using the darknet to um, for, for the acquisition of illicit drugs, uh, probably the best resource available. I think it would be the Global Drug Survey, which is the biggest drug survey that there is. It works a little bit. Um, What's the best way to describe it? It's basic. Well, uh, actually, many of your listeners have probably seen invitations to participate. Um, you can go on, and even if you don't use illicit drugs, you just use booze or whatever. They invite everyone to join, and I think there's a, something like a hundred thousand respondents around the world now. Um, and what they, uh, what the Global Drug Survey looks at is, you know, the frequency of your drug use, what kind of drugs, how you get the drugs as well. And for um, the last few years now, um, they've included the section on the darknet, and so we've been able to track the number of users, um, uh, uh, people who, who use the darknet in Australia and around the world. What the Global Drug Survey suggests is that we're, um, I think we're in the top three or top five, I can't remember off the top of my head, people who use um, the darknet to purchase illicit drugs. And that's, I think we're up nearly around 20% of, um, of Australian illicit drug users have used the darknet um, in the previous 12 months to purchase illicit drugs. That's amazing data. It's interesting. It probably overstates it um, because you're comp- if you're completing the global drug survey, you're completing an online survey. So, for example, you know, you're already being – you're already excluding, say, homeless drug users or, you know, dr- drug users who don't know, know how to use computers. So we would say that that number is an overestimation. Um, but we also see clear trends in it as well. So the, num- the proportion of uh, people – um, who have been answering the survey who say that they use the darknet to buy drugs has increased about fourfold over the past eight years. So even if we're just capturing a small portion, we can see the overall trend is um, is going very significantly in one direction. So that's one way we can estimate use. In terms of people selling, well, we can use the software crawlers to do that because we can. It's one of the nice, handy things about when you're using a darknet site to acquire drugs is you can narrow down the dealers by country. So we can just say, right, we want to just look at the number of Australian dealers out there. We can look at their customer feedback. We can say, all right, so looking at all the customer feedback and all the Australian drug dealers that are there. Uh, well, through doing this, this is another project that that we uh, that we did. Cannabis by far was the most sold illicit drug on the darknet, which was a little bit surprising. Very surprising. Yeah, because you can think... Especially in Australia. Exactly. You know, it's so easy to get. um, uh, And that was followed by prescription drugs, MDMA, cocaine. So it actually quite closely mirrored, um, not exactly, but quite closely mirrored the kinds of drug supply patterns that we see in offline drug markets as well. Yeah, that's um, super interesting. So in terms of the types, and you might have covered this in some of that early chat that we had, but just who are the the crypto market uh, dark web drug dealers are these people who have been drug dealers in real life and then decide to just 
do it online because it's safer, as you mentioned? Mm-hmm. Are they people who are primarily entrepreneurs who are looking for something different to do? Just curious about um, who decides to be a dark web dealer. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question and, and one, again, that, that was sort of driving some of our motivations to do the interviews. Um, now, we... we uh, the number of people that responded, so we, we only interviewed about 13 people, which was actually the, the biggest um, study of, of um, uh, interviews with darknet drug dealers that have been done to date. But uh, amongst them, we had about half and half. I think, yeah, I can't remember if it was seven and six, which, which way around it was. But um, uh, around half reported that they had drug, dealt drugs previously offline before. The other half said that they hadn't. Um, and in terms of we, were, we didn't want to get any identifying sort of information, but people were disclosing things like, well, you know, one of my motivations for selling drugs on the dark net is because um, I need some help paying off my student loans. So, you know, by that we can sort of infer which country they're most likely to be from, but also their levels of educational attainment. Um, I can say in general terms the sorts of language and the sort of level of, of discourse um, of the people suggested quite high levels of education in in my view. Uh, but then we had other people who said, you know, well, the main reason I did this is because I was involved in menial work. It was basically just, just doing sort of slave labor, you know, for a big multinational corporation and I wanted to be my own boss. Um, so a lot of the motivations were pretty prosaic and, you know, would be motivations from why people might get involved in mining or fly in, fly out work or something other than, you know, work that seems high pay but also maybe high risk or um, working in sort of dubious conditions. Um, yeah, and it was it was fascinating actually. And you can see a bit of this if if you if you read any of the studies and the transcripts. The the rhetoric, you know, the the, the whole idea around darknet drug dealers you know, terrifies people. You know, you, I mean, dark web or drugs, either of those things by themselves, you know, make a lot of people freak out. You combine them two together, and people are, I think, maybe you know, sort of imagining some Darth Maul kind of figure, you know, out there. <laughs> but they're really normal people, you know, at least the one the, the people who we were interviewing with, you know, normal kind of concerns and 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 worries um, and, you know, they're, they're people who are maybe just a bit more risk tolerant uh, and, uh, yeah, prepared to prepared to do a little bit more to, to get that money. It's fascinating. And so, I mean, all of this takes place under the veil of anonymity, but there comes a point where you actually have to take physical delivery of whatever you're ordering online. How does that not trigger arrest or um, police intervention? And, you know, like, how does that work? Well, it does sometimes. Um, so, you know, that's important to put out there. Um, you know, there are various risks um, at each stage of the, the drug dealing or drug buying process on the darknet. Um, in general terms, you know, it's it's pretty safe. Um, but the the postal aspect is probably the most risky um, risky bunch because, you know, law enforcement agencies, particularly here in Australia, you know, often don't have the really advanced IT kinds of skills that you need to do sort of Bitcoin tracing and you know, breaking Tor encryption is it's very difficult um, and it's very resource intensive and it's probably not all that worth it for law enforcement. You know. Even for a high-level drug dealer, you know, that's a lot of resources to, to throw at someone, you know, and for a drug purchaser, you know, um, an end user, you know, it, it, would, it would be very, very difficult indeed to justify that sort of stuff. But delivering stuff in the post, um, I think people vastly overestimate the capabilities of Australian law enforcement to detect things in the post. If you're buying it from overseas, then, you know, it goes through international customs. So, you know, border force, at least in international terms, has relatively good capabilities there. 
But still, most of it gets through. Um, so, you know, and we can tell this again by customer feedback. We can see the number of seizures that Border Force do. And, you know, there's been huge spikes basically since Silk Road was launched of the number of, um, uh, you know, mail items getting intercepted. Um, and so most dealers are still happy to send to the country. A lot of buyers are a bit wary of their drugs being intercepted by customs. Even though there are legal problems, you know, again, people probably overestimating some of the risks in in some senses. And this isn't to advocate or condone or encourage people buying no, drugs on the dark net at all. Um, but, uh, you know, trying to get enough evidence. You, but, well, let me put it another way. The way that the war on drugs has been fought in lots of contemporary terms um, or historical terms rather has been around buy-bust operations. So, you know, that's where I pretend I'm an undercover cop. You know, I know you're a drug dealer. We carry out a transaction. As soon as, you know, I give you the money and you give me the drugs, I flash my badge and I arrest you. And um, from an evidentiary point of view, that's a fantastic package because I've got the money, I've got the drugs, I've got you, and I've got some sort of surveillance or at least my own testimony, you know, catching you in the act. So getting a conviction in court is very simple. Um, uh, and, of course, if I don't want a conviction, I want to go further up the chain, I can pressure you with a con- you know, potential conviction for you to give up your supplier and then, you know, up the chain. We Prisoner's dilemma, a lovely little game to play. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but now let's transpose that example online. Um, if you're, you know, a cop or a border force agent and you, you know, you get lucky and you actually do manage to, you know, find this drug consignment, yes, just say you know, it's an envelope with a, a gram or two of cocaine in it and uh, it's addressed to you, well, what have I actually got? You know, I've got an envelope. It's containing some illegal material. It's addressed to you, but I don't have any evidence that you actually ordered it. There's no record of a financial transaction. There's no record of any communications. You're not in possession of the drug. Uh, there's no supplier that we can, you know, put our, our finger on either. And even if we could somehow, you know, threaten you and you crack under pressure and admit, yes, it's mine. There's no way we can follow that up the supply chain because you just bought it off a person on the darknet. You can give us their username. But, you know, the, as we, we talked about earlier, the darknet drug dealers assume some of their customers would be undercover. So trying to get enough evidence to secure a conviction and prosecute the war on drugs on a mass scale, you know, if any individual case, if law enforcement want you badly enough, they will get you. But looked at it, you know, on a, on a broad sort of angle, how they're actually going to, to do this on a population-wide population level breaks the law enforcement model of policing even even more than it was already kind of broken beforehand. It's fascinating, just fascinating stuff. Um, so my next question is just sort of around the research you've done and I love the, the term you've coined gentrification of, <laughs> of the marketplace and how that happens. Perhaps describe that a little bit and the sense that I get from kind of your writing is that it, it's, it's about – how what essentially was like a subterranean Wild West has sort of become this like neatly stratified department store online experience replete with customer reviews, peer reviews, safe environment, um, you know, easy checkout and the like. Yeah, it was um, – so the term actually comes from – so one of the originals, the Silk Road talks that I was doing was at the British Society of Criminology some years ago now and um, this bloke uh, who had – Later, you know, become good friends and longtime collaborators, uh, Dr. Jack Cunliffe from from Kent University. He uh, 
he met up with me outside. He was like, wow, that was, that was really interesting. He's like, you know, it's so easy but for all the reasons you just mentioned, your customer reviews and the simplicity and people are really polite when they're dealing with you and the promos and your two-for-one specials, loyalty bonus discounts, all the various things. Uh, and he said, you know, do you think the dark web is gentrifying the drugs trade? And that just bounced around my head and I loved the way he put it. Um, so, yeah, and, and what we was like, okay, well, what, is, what would gentrification actually look like in a drug market? And there had been a little bit about research about this before, not in the digital space, but there was this fantastic study done in, uh, in New York in the 19, uh, late 1970s, 1980s. And basically this – actually, no, sorry, I think it was a bit later than that, uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, because this is when we start seeing beepers and mobile phones start to appear – um, and basically those technologies, the development of those technologies and the gentrification of the urban environment meant that you know, the sort of skid rows where you had, you know, people, you know, sort of lining up to get their heroin shots or whatever, the, the open-air drug markets that used to characterise a lot of New York uh, or those parts of New York uh, became big targets for police operations. So, you know, and obviously you're very vulnerable. If you're a drug dealer working in a corner, you know, anyone who's seen The Wire before knows how easy it is for, for police to saturate areas like that. Um, so that's basically what happened. The open-air drug markets were destroyed. Uh, but because these new technologies were emerging, the mobile phones and the beepers, suddenly you didn't need a drug dealer on a corner. All you needed was a number. Um, and so when that happened, it actually reduced a lot of drug market violence. It didn't reduce the amount of drug dealing, but it re- reduced drug um, violence because suddenly dealers weren't competing for turf. They were competing for customers still. But dealers could get around the place and be a lot more discreet. Um, so that was sort of uh, you know a pre-dark web version of gentrification, and now we see the sort of more full version, the more fully realized version, where yeah, dealers can deal from the safety and comfort of their own homes. They're not buying weapons, you know, the same way. There isn't the same motivation to do so. You don't need to associate with yourself with organized crime because that's one of the the, the main reasons to do so, you know, for your own protection, often from the organized criminals themselves. Um, yeah, so there, there, there is a very powerful case to be made that the dark web is actually making the illicit drugs trade much safer, not only for consumers, but also for the market participants themselves. Very well said. And so what are you most excited about from your own research standpoint? What's the next frontier for you? Ooh, there's a few different ones. Uh, some I'm at liberty to talk about. Some other ones I'm going to keep under my hat for the moment. Um, I think one of the, the interesting ones at the moment is been looking at um, uh, well this anom operation, um, the Operation Ironside, which has been dubbed the police operation of the century here. And uh, we were told the FBI specially sought out the Australian Federal Police because of their technical capabilities and decryption and this sort of stuff. And um, uh, you know, I imagine many of you, your listeners, you know, saw the news footage. The prime minister was there at the press conference, which is pretty remarkable, claiming credit for some of this stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's all in the context of needing to pass more and more invasive and intrusive surveillance and anti-encryption laws. Um, and uh, look, working with some some new colleagues of mine at uh, Deakin University, Monique Mann in particular, and, and, and Ian Warren, who are specialists in encryption and um, and uh, legal issues around these these kinds of um, policing powers, we started looking into this, and we're like, well, hang on, really, why would the FBI be coming to us for technical assistance? You know, they've got you know a, a absolutely monumental budget um, and IT expertise that we would only dream of here in Australia. And the more we looked into it, we realised that the reason that our US law enforcement partners wanted to partner with us is because we have 
the weakest privacy laws out of <laughs> any of the Five Eyes partners. Um, and uh, it's the reason that while there have been about 200 suspects charged here in Australia, none have been charged in the United States because the evidence that we have gathered through the use of these very legally dubious surveillance powers would not be admissible in the United States. So um, so looking at the basically looking at the di- digital war on drugs, not only from a policing strategy but from a legal one as well, is something that's been uh, you know, occupying a lot of attention for us at the moment. So the Americans are coming to Australia to learn about how to reduce privacy on a mass scale. Yeah, and to, to learn about what their own citizens are up to because they can, they can, yeah, they can share data and intelligence between law enforcement agencies. Um, but then, yeah, they're running up against these. Well, this is, so this is one of the weird things that we're, that we're in a situation now. One, one of the things that we've seen, and this has been a development that's excuse me, have been taking place over the past few years has been the use of uh, what we call RICO statutes, racketeers, uh, racketeering and organised crime um, uh, statutes that were basically used to take down the mob in New York and it's a way of you know, using conspiracy laws to try and um, uh, implicate the kingpins, you know, the Tony Sopranos or, you know, uh, whoever else, the people at the top of these organisations who never touch the drugs themselves, right? And, you know, never, you're never going to see, you know, hear them discussing it, but by tying them to, a, you know, to, the, to, the, to their captain who ties them to a lieutenant, who ties them to the foot soldiers, to the mule and so on, you can build a conspiracy case that way. What it looks like the US, well, what the US has been doing is using conspiracy laws to try and get people extradited to the United States, regardless of whether they're actually committed an offence there. And the dark web's been a really interesting way of doing that because what they can do is say, well, you haven't committed an offence in the US, but you're running a website and some of the data in that website, you know, the darknet drug site, bounced through a US server. Oh, that's crazy. So that means that we can extradite you to the United States and charge you here uh, for offences that, you know, essentially have got nothing to do with the US. Yeah, um, that's, that seems so absurd. <laughs> well, it, it takes an even bigger uh, leap of absurdity now because what it looks like is that the US and Australia can actually use extradition laws to get people, US citizens, extradited to Australia for offences that could have been committed, you know, either in Australia or the US or anywhere that's bounced through any of those servers, and we can charge them under our much more permissive laws because they don't have the same protections so to privacy. So we're going to yeah. become like a, a crime clearinghouse for the US? Well, like we did back in the old days, we could be getting you know offenders. The colony, yeah, offenders returned to the colony. Exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah. So this is you know these are some of the sort of you know exciting but also completely you know befuddling sorts of developments that we're they were right in the thick of trying to work through how these things are going to work and if that's indeed the direction we're going to go. What a great time to catch you! It's it's just been a mind blowing conversation for me. I've waited three years to return to it, and I'm happy <laughs> that I did. Um, where can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Uh, so you can follow me on uh, on Twitter. I'm at Jamo Martin. Um, you can go to um, my uh, Deakin University staff page as well. Actually, it's a good reminder. I need to finish setting that up. Um, and uh, on Google Scholar, uh, or, or even just if you type in my name, James Martin, and drugs uh, into Google, <laughs> that pops lots of things up. Um, I was going to so, say James Martin is a bit too regular that without the drugs it might be a bit harder. You get a chef, you, <laughs> yeah. yeah, most likely. Yeah, <laughs> it's the, it's what we call the Mike Davis problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. 
why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.